It's a uh, very good morning from me. Uh, my name is Peter Milliken. I'm one of the pastors here. And if, um, if you're new and you don't know who I am, um, it, it's good to have you with us. And I'd, I'd love to meet you in person after the service. If you want to come and introduce yourself to me. Uh, I don't know if you've ever rock climbed before. Um, I don't do it um, at all, really. But when I was teenager pretty early in my teenage years my older cousin who's who's much older than me um he was into rock climbing and he uh found this spot on my uncle's farm that he you could rock climb right it was enough of a ravine of 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 a cliff in some sense to to rock climb up and i mean like properly rock climb i don't just mean like kind of scurry up a hill but you, you could go to the sides and kind of work your way up um pretty easily uh, but he liked the challenge of rock climbing, so he wanted to climb this specific uh, p- part of the cliff face and asked if I wanted to join, and I did, and so we went. And uh, he went up the side first, and um, he went to the top, and he he got the uh, a rope, and he tied it around this huge tree, the trunk of a, of a massive tree that I couldn't see from the bike. I could sort of, sort of see the top of the tree, but I couldn't see... The, the base of it and then all of a sudden this rope as I'm standing at the bottom comes flying down um, and that was going to be the rope that we would use for rock climbing because the last thing you want when you're rock climbing is you get halfway up and you fall and you hurt yourself and or die and uh, I wasn't real keen on dying that day and um, anyway so what do you think I do as soon as that rope comes over that I haven't seen him really tie off I haven't can't really see the trunk of the tree further back, what am I going to do on it, right? I, I'm yanking on that thing with everything that I got. I want to make sure before I start climbing up this thing that this is safe and secure, right? I'm putting all of my weight on it to make sure I don't get a halfway up and this thing snaps and I'm, you know, c- coming down on some jagged rocks. And, I mean, that, that was really the only time I've been rock climbing. He might have even been doing the wrong thing. If you're proper rock climber and we're doing it wrong don't come and talk to me i know uh but um we we just wanted to make sure and i wanted to make sure first of all that we had a rope and that that rope was safe and secure and it wasn't until we climbed the thing well until i climbed the thing got to the top and saw it and i was like okay that is secure we made it it was I, i tested the rope in some sense by climbing up there and making it to the top, and I'm sure some of you were hoping that I fell and hurt myself, but I didn't. So, sorry to disappoint you there. But that's a little bit like our faith, in that um, Peter says in the New Testament that you love him even though you haven't seen him. Right? And the truth of the matter is that we weren't around in the first century. I didn't walk with Jesus in the first century when he was there. Um, and I still await his physical, bodily reappearance here on earth. I, I, I haven't seen that uh, come to fruition yet, right? And so we live in this middle ground between when Jesus came the first time and when he's coming back the second time. And it's good for us as we go through the Christian life just to pull on that rope every now and again and make sure we are on sure footing, that the rope holds, that what we believe is true, that we have very good reasons and grounds for us to continue on in the faith. 
And so today we're going to look at a story in the book of Luke about Jesus when he was 12 years old. It is unique to Luke's gospel, which we've been working our way through during the Christmas series, and we're just continuing it on for today and one more week. And it talks about Jesus, about something that he did when he was 12 years old. And we're going to pull on the rope today, and we're going to see that that is sure foundation that we stand on, that that rope holds. And um, if you are asking some questions of Christianity, if you are wrestling with some doubts, um, if you're maybe just a little bit unsure, this is a good sermon for you. This is a good story for you about Jesus. Because Luke's audience is actually a lot like us. Most of the people that he's writing to, if not all of them, haven't seen Jesus either. They weren't there when Jesus was ministering and alive. It's likely that the people that Luke is writing his gospel to, they weren't there and that's why he's writing it. And he's gathering all these eyewitness data and stories and what Jesus did and what he said and he's putting it together in a collection and he's, he's giving it to them so that they can know who Jesus is, what he said what he did and what that means. And that's basically where we are as well, as we await the physical appearance of Christ again. So let's read the story. It's in Luke chapter 2. It's not going to be on the screen, so make sure you've got your Bible on, on, your, uh, on, your, on your phone. Again, there's, uh, there's, there's Bibles over there. I think it's good for us to read together. It's in Luke chapter 2. And uh, we're going to start at verse 41. I'm reading out of the, uh, the NIV translation. This is what it says. Every year, Jesus' parents went to, the Jeru- went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why have you been searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and he was, and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. Very interesting story. And let's work our way through some of the details and dig in. A Jewish man was required to go to Jerusalem three times a year for three different feasts, the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, this particular story takes place when Joseph, 
is heading to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, um, the men were always required, women weren't, but they could if they wished to. And during the intertestamental period between Old and New Testament, it became sort of custom actually that the women did attend and it showed great piety. Um, it was said that a woman would go to the feast as well. And so Mary and Joseph get all the kids together, they pack the caravan. Um, it's likely, and we can't be sure at this stage, but it's likely Jesus is 12 years old. Uh, we know that Jesus had brothers um, and, and other family members. And so it's likely that there are other family members on the, the stage at this point. Um, I, I doubt that J Joseph and Mary would have waited 12 years before having more kids. And so it's likely that Jesus and his brothers um, w would have all got together and they all would have traveled to Jerusalem together as a family, a big family road trip, the annual pilgrimage. And it's probably likely because Jesus is 12 years old, um, he, he is still considered in, in Jewish law to be a child. Um, it wasn't until you turned 13 that you were considered an adult and uh, you have your bar mitzvah and all those sorts of things and you, and, and you are now considered to be an adult. And Jesus would then be required to attend the feasts of his own volition as an adult rather than under his, his parents' headship in some sense. And so it's likely that they are taking Jesus for the first time to the feast um, in a bit of a, this is what we do um, so that you know next year you're going on your own or you are responsible at least to get to the feast on your own. Now that is a bit of speculation, but it's likely that's the case. Now they're heading from Nazareth down to Jerusalem. It's about 130 kilometers journey and it's going to take three days for the family to get there and uh you, you could imagine maybe you've been on a three-day car trip with you know a bunch of kids um working your way to uh, a, a destination and, and kids are complaining and you can imagine james the brother of jesus just being like do we have to go you know and um you know the parents say the thing that James hates to hear all the time is like, why can't you just be more like Jesus, James? Um, and he heard that a lot growing up. Um, now, all of that is a bit of speculation, right? Um, but what we do know for sure is that Jesus is 12 years old. He's heading to Jerusalem. And it's likely this is the first time that Jesus has seen the temple. Um, at least we know he went as an infant, but as sort of you know, as an older boy, that he's going to see and experience the temple um, as, as, as a kid. Now, from this point on, we read of this classic family mix-up, right? The, uh, the festival, the feast is over, and the, the, the family is heading back to where they are from in Nazareth, and they gather everyone, and they start on their way, and they go a whole day and get to their stopping point, their resting point, their overnight stay, and they're kind of doing the count off. I'd be like, okay, James is here, and Jude's here, and here, and then, you know, they have the, the, the classic home alone kind of moment where they realize they've left the kid behind, and... Uh, I don't know what the lady's name is off Home Alone. And she's like, Kevin. Um, Mary's like, Jesus. And it was the first time blasphemy was used of Jesus' name. Uh, and realized Jesus isn't here amongst us, right? And they'd gone a whole day's journey 
So they have to go a whole day's journey back to Jerusalem and then they spend that third day looking around for Jesus, wondering where is our 12-year-old boy? And they find him in the temple courts amongst the teachers, it says. And um, these were probably uh, the Sanhedrin, the temple Sanhedrin, who were not the, necessarily the big boys. These weren't the Supreme Court that are going to put Jesus to, to, to death later. These are probably just the temple Sanhedrin who were almost like the court of appeals that you would go to before you would go to the higher Sanhedrin. And, and what would happen is they would come out on feasts and festivals and they would come out to the temple courts and they would sit and anyone who's visiting, who isn't a regular at the temple or a local, could ask the Sanhedrin any question that they wanted about the Bible, the Old Testament, the law, or about God. Right? And this was Jerusalem's kind of way of showing hospitality to their fellow countrymen who didn't live in Jerusalem, get access to the temple or the teachers of the law like the locals did. And they find Jesus amongst these guys and he's sitting there talking with them going back and forth as a 12 year old boy what he asked we don't know we don't know the specific questions that he's asking them but it's interesting because in verse 46 um, it says that he was listening to them and he was asking them questions and then in verse 47 uh, it says, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so it almost paints this picture that Jesus would listen. He would ask a question. Either they couldn't answer it or he would give his understanding and his answer. And everyone was amazed at Jesus's answers and understanding, not the teachers. That's flipped completely on what would be custom and normal, right? You'd ask the teacher, the teacher would tell you and you'd be illuminated. Jesus asks them questions, they either can't answer it or his answers are a lot better. You see, Jesus had a grasp on the law and on who God was and what he was like more than any of the Jewish teachers and authorities, even as a boy and his parents find him doing this right and they are astonished and now mary is going to <clears throat> bring a complaint to jesus about what's going on and what her last few days have been like and you can imagine this as a parent or a mother and your child is missing and all the frantic searching and wondering and anxiety and what you might go through and so it's very understandable what mary says she says son why have you treated us like this your father and i have been anxiously searching for you and jesus is going to respond with something that is phenomenal when we understand it these are the first words that jesus is going to speak in the whole of the gospel of luke up to this point we have heard a lot about jesus 
We have witnessed a lot about his birth, about the prophecy of his birth, about what people have done towards him and how it has all played out, but we haven't heard from Jesus himself. And this is what he says in response. Why were you searching for me? He asked. It's from Jesus' perspective, he can't grasp or he questions why you would even have to look for me. It's a no-brainer for him that he is where he is and he stayed where he stayed. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Literally, um, it's, it says, didn't you know it is necessary for me to be in the things of my father? And and uh, the, the phrase, it is necessary, it's, it's one Greek word and it's going to pop up over and over in the book of Luke and it's going to always relate to the mission of Jesus. He's going to say things like, it is necessary for me to preach the kingdom of God. It is necessary for me to suffer, to die and to be raised. It is necessary that I must go to Jerusalem. It is necessary for me to suffer. It is necessary for me to be reckoned with criminals. Again, it is necessary to die, to suffer and be raised. It is necessary to suffer and come into glory. It is necessary that scripture about me must be fulfilled. All of those from the book of Luke as you work your way through it. See, Jesus answers Mary's complaint with a, a gentle rebuke. It's a clarifier, an eye-opener to his mission. He's not just here to live a little and then leave. He has a mission and he will achieve it. And right there and then, it was necessary for him to be of the things of his father, to be in his house. And of course, the question then becomes, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus would be in the things of his father? Well, let's start by where he currently is. Let's start physically. He's in the temple. It's, he, he's in his father's house. And the Old Testament describes the temple as a miniature model of heaven in the way that it was decorated and the way that it was laid out. It was a smaller earthly version of God's dwelling place. It, it was like a dollhouse version of heaven. And in the temple, you have everything you need to understand salvation. You have a holy God that dwells in what's known as the Holy of Holies, a small room within the temple. You have on the outside a sinful people 
who come to the temple and bring a sacrifice to a high priest or a priest. And they bring that sacrifice and, and offer it before the Lord and its blood is spilt for the forgiveness of their sins so that they may have at least temporarily access to and relationship with God himself. And the priest mediates this relationship between people, sinful people, and holy God. And it all takes place within this, this building and area of a physical nature. So you have that going on. And then you have also this relational dynamic that Jesus references in his answer. Where it says, it's necessary for me to be of the things of my father he refers to him god as his father it's a personal relational term and it describes something that we can never fully wrap our head around it's the ongoing relationship between father and son within the trinity that the spirit also is in where they are they are unique and yet they are one. They are distinct, but they're of the same substance. And the Father loves the Son and delights in the Son. And the Son seeks to glorify the Father. And I think Jesus comes to the temple. And for the first time, he feels like he's home. Because he's always been a bit of a square peg in a round hole. But now he's, he's in his father's house. And he wants to stay. It's like he has to stay. It's necessary for him to stay. It's like a, a moth to the flame or a fish to water. He is with his father. It's like he says, this is who I am. I'm the son. He's the father. We're together. Lastly, let's look at what he's doing when he says this. He's answering questions about God, about the law. He's bringing illumination about who God is, what he's like, what, what he meant by what he said. He's teaching people who God is and what he's like. He's bringing understanding and realization about what the Father's like. You know, I think of John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father, he made him known. If you want to know the Father, you look at the Son.
Therefore, I think Jesus being about the things of his father means that he would be connected with the, he is connected with his father relationally. He is in his father's house physically, where revelation about him takes place and relationship can happen. You know, Mary started her complaint by saying, your father and I, dot, dot, dot. And what she was really complaining about is that Jesus had not come back to his father's house in Nazareth. And Jesus says, mum, I'm in my father's house. There is something bigger and greater and more wonderful in this relationship than even the closest biological family relationship. I'm exactly where I'm meant to be. And his parents needed to realize that. But don't think that Mary and Joseph comprehended that fully from the start. They're still trying to figure out Jesus as time goes along. Look what the text says in verse 50, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. They didn't get it. Not right there and then. They didn't grasp everything that Jesus was saying and what it meant and and who he was completely. And so the story kind of finishes. They went back to Nazareth and he was obedient to them. It's a little old place of Nazareth, which had a reputation, right? Remember the saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's, It's a nothing place. That's... His mother treasured all these things in her heart. Mary's holding on to these things. What that really means is she's pondering. She's she's mulling it over. What what is this that's happening? Who who is this son of mine? She's pondering. Mary hasn't got it all figured out yet. So that's the story. That's kind of what's happened. That's what Jesus has said. Why does Luke put this in here? I want to give you one good reason why I think this is in here for us. He goes to painstakingly, Luke does go to painstakingly obvious reasons to show us three times that Mary and Joseph don't understand what's going on at the time in verse 48 they find him he's teaching and they're astonished and verse 50 he responds to them and they don't understand and then they come back to nazareth and she still can't figure it out and she's pondering it again luke wants to make it clear That Jesus, as a little boy, thinks he's the son of God. And it's not because his mama 
told him he was. It is not because his parents have indoctrinated him into this belief. He thought from the very start of his life, even before he was considered an adult, he was God's unique son in special relationship with him. It is not his parents' influence. He will not be championed into this role on the shoulders of his countrymen and, and hoisted into this position. He won't be voted into this title by a democracy. He, he won't be living in an area where the intellectual elite will influence him in the echo chamber to convince him that he is the Son of God. He'll be in Nazareth, where nothing good comes. Now, he, he believed from a boy that he was God's son. Even when his family, his own family, was not convinced or sure. See, there was a heresy and many sense that have come about, about Jesus. That he was a man. He started a man. Some say he was always a man and stayed a man. But there was one called adoptionism, which says Jesus was a man for the majority of his life until he was baptized. And then he became divine at that point. And um, it was condemned as a heresy. And one of the reasons that it has been condemned as heresy is texts like this. But that was never Jesus' claim. That from the very beginning and onset of his life, he claimed that he was the Son of God. And you might ask the question, well, what does it matter? What does it matter if he did start a man and then become divine? Would that really change things? And the answer is absolutely yes, it would. Because something lesser than cannot take you to something greater than. Let me explain that. Jesus wants to bring you into relationship with the Father. He wants you to be part of the intimate Trinitarian dynamic. And you're going to be brought into that when you come into faith in Jesus. And you're going to be able to call him Father. Just as Jesus called the Almighty Father. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. You're brought into the family. 
and you need to know that the Trinity is the most exclusive family, right? You, you can't get in there by yourself. Somebody can't um, bring you in who's not in the family. I can't bring you in. Pete can't bring you in. Celebrities can't bring you in. Politicians can't bring you in. Somebody in the family has to bring you in. And if Jesus wasn't always in the family, then he can't bring you in. Something lesser then cannot take you into something greater then. And Luke wants you to know that at no point was, the son, was Jesus not the Son of God. Never did he just claim to be a man and only a man. He was and is the Son of God and He brings you into relationship with the Father. And you'll be given the Spirit and you'll be able to call the Almighty One Father, Abba Father, Daddy. It's very relational, it's very intimate. And you're probably asking, well, what's at the Father? What do I, what's in there when I'm a part of it? Everything you've ever wanted. Life. Eternal life. Love. Delight. You are delighted in. You are accepted Have you ever wondered what God was doing before creation? What was he doing before he created everything? Jesus prays this prayer. He says, I thank you, Lord, that before the creation of the world, you loved me. He was delighting in the Son. And the Son was glorifying the Father before anything else. Because God is love. And He's always been loving. And He's always had somebody to love. Because they've always eternally existed. And you are brought into that. That means you are loved with the same love that the Father has for the Son. Go ahead. Pull on that rope. It's solid. It ain't moving. You are on good ground. But the way that you have been brought in came at a cost. See, Jesus, in, his sto- in this story, he's at the temple for Passover. It's a feast of Passover. And during that feast, 
each family would choose a year-old lamb. And at twilight, on a certain day, they would kill this unblemished animal. And they would spread the blood of that lamb over doorposts with a, a hyssop branch. And um, then the rest of the lamb was roasted and they would, they would eat it. And if anything was left, it had to be destroyed. And it was very important that the bones of the lamb were not broken. And along with this meat, they would eat uh, unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And they would dress in clothes that would um, be their, their traveling clothes as they ate. And this all looked back to what God did in the Exodus, where Israel was under Egypt's slavery and he brought judgment upon them and the firstborn male was killed. But the Israelites would be saved by putting blood of the lamb over their doorposts and God would pass over their sins. And... uh, This judgment was enough that Egypt finally released Israel into freedom and they left in a hurry, so much so that the bread didn't even have time to rise and they had to be in their clothes, ready to go. And this is the the, the feast that Jesus is celebrating as a 12-year-old boy looking back at what God did for his people. Well, about 20 years on, give or take a couple of years probably, Jesus will be back in Jerusalem and it will be the time of Passover. And while families are sacrificing their one-year-old lambs, a different family will be making a sacrifice. It will be the Lamb of God. His very own son put to death. And upon that cross while he lies there, he will be offered bitter wine on a hyssop branch, it says. And his blood will be spread across those wooden posts that he is crucified on. And his, uh, it will be recorded that his bones will not be broken. And once a sinful people will have access to God as Father through a mediator greater than animal. He will be like one of us. Jesus, the Son of God. He will bring us into the family so that we also might be sons of and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, the scripture says, indwelled by the Spirit, and we can call him Abba, Father. This is the mission of Jesus, and he is clear about it when he's still a child. And Luke wants you to know that. Luke wants you to be sure of it, that it was his claim, that it was his mission, that he did go through with it. 
and you are on solid ground as a son and a daughter of God. The person and work of Jesus guarantees it. For that, let me read out of... Um, if, if you want to understand the Trinity a bit better in a way that you can grasp it, this is an excellent book. This is, you need to start here. Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Let me just read a, a small paragraph from there for you. This is what he says. Indeed, for when a person deliberately and confidently calls the Almighty Father... It shows they have grasped something beautiful and fundamental about who God is and to what they have been saved and how that wins our hearts back to Him. The fact that God the Father is happy and even delights to share His love for His Son and thus be known as our Father reveals just how unfathomably gracious and kind He is. He loves us the way He loves His Son because we are His sons and daughters. You know, often Christians can be some of the most miserable people I come across. And, um, and a lot of the time, it's, we're miserable about ourselves. And we just wallow in our own guilt and sin and we have perspectives on ourselves that are just low and if we were left up to our own works and our own kind of our own efforts I can understand that but you need to know if, if you have a low view of yourself and you have come to faith in Jesus, you and God are not on the same page. And I've got all the time in the world for understanding the, the, the depravity of sin and where, where we have come from. But we aren't there anymore. And it's because Jesus, the Son of God, laid himself down. That we are now in the family and God sees us through, through the lens of Christ. And you are loved and delighted in and accepted. And I know that can be hard to grasp but that doesn't mean it's not true Jesus was so sure of the father's love for him he could go anywhere and do anything even be crucified on a cross and he knows he is in a secure relationship. And you need to know God loves you that way. 
that rope is secure. You are on sure ground as son and daughter because of Christ. So, let's remember and praise the Lord for what he has done. That Jesus did this, he made it possible. It would not be so without Christ's sacrifice. Think of who the Son is. He is the one eternally and utterly loved by his Father. The Father who would not even moderate or renounce his love for his Son. And the Son comes to share that as the Father wanted. Because Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. His Father is not ashamed to be known as ours. Nothing could give him greater confidence and delight in approaching the heavenly throne of grace. How great is the love of the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Let me pray for us and then uh, we'll, we'll sing our final song. Our Father, that we can call you that. We're known by you, we're loved by you, we're accepted by you. That's enough. We don't need anything else. God, we thank you for Jesus, that you sent him, that he came and he took our place, that he was the Son of God. And we love him. I pray you'd help us to remember and be sure of our identity as loved and delighted in by you because of what Christ has done. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.